Code to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. back to the trauma code this is dr simon fitzgerald live and in studio for monday january 8th 2024 happy new year uh the show has had a bit of uh an extended break um but uh over the break we did have an interview with a uh, a trauma surgeon from out west uh originally from somalia dr kali hussein um interviewing her about uh, some of her work looking at uh, physicians and physician organization responses to the violence and specifically the genocide in Gaza. Um, so let's get right into it. We're going to play an interview with Dr. Kali Hussein on physicians in times of genocide. So welcome back to Trauma Code. We are not live, but we are in the studio today. I'm here with my lovely co-host, Dr. Cassandra Raphael, happy Monday, everyone. Welcome to the Trauma Code. And we are recording on Monday, December 18th, uh, after hours, uh, a little extracurricular uh, work with a uh, trauma surgeon I'm really excited to have on uh, the Trauma Code, Dr. Khali Hussein. Dr. Hussein, uh, are you with us? Can you hear us? How's my pronunciation? Your pronunciation is excellent, Simon. Uh, thank you, both you and Cassandra, for having me on this podcast. I'm excited to be here. And I asked you to um, to come on. Actually, you and I have had some professional interactions going back to 2020. We were both on uh, sort of a panel of experts at the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma Conference in the height of the pandemic uh, in the summer of 2020. Um, and we've been following you online ever since. Uh, you were recently a guest of a student group at uh, Stanford looking at a, a thoughtful discussion on Palestine in this moment. And uh, I thought it was speaking to something that I really felt like I want to say to everyone around me in this kind of moment of crisis, um, kind of what is the role of the physician. Um, and to me, really, physicians in time of genocide and I know that there are some people that are going to feel that that is um, controversial, and we'll get into that. But I think it's so important to speak to it, to um, to lend the moral weight of of what what must be done in this moment. And I thought that you spoke to that uh, well, so I wanted to thank you for that work. Thank you. Um, it's 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 extremely important work because I think one of the problems we have within our field of medicine is that we shy away from from um, important discussions, especially when it has to do with politics. And the fact of the matter is that politics impacts health, right? Policy 
whatever policies our, our governments make impacts health. And especially in a war, especially in a conflict, there is direct health impact, right? And there is nothing more, um, you know, a, a, there isn't a bigger calling than what's happening right now to illustrate the importance of physicians speaking up when it comes to conflict. The entire healthcare system in Gaza has been destroyed. And we have physicians within the area. We have Israeli physicians calling for the destruction and bombing of hospitals. And so for us in the medical field to remain silent on this is not doing justice to the oath that we took to protect and serve our, our patients, not just at the bedside, but speak up when we need to. I do think that the, the term of, of genocide carries um, historical weight um, and it's kind of legally defined. Um, and so it's a lot of people are dismissing it out hand. And I, I think, is, is that something that, that you can help us uh, understand a little bit? What is that uh, definition of genocide that we're talking about? So genocide, we're not calling this genocide just because, you know, we're a bunch of physicians sitting around and deciding to use the word, you know, genocide out of our own, you know, political affiliations or feelings or whatever. This is actually uh, defined by the Convention on Prevention um, and, pun and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, um, the, the Geneva Convention. And genocide is actually defined as a crime committed with the intent to destroy a national ethnic, racial, or religious group in whole or in part. And so this is as defined in the Geneva Convention. And the reason we're calling it a genocide is because the experts are calling it a genocide. Raz Segal is an Israeli Holocaust and genocide expert. He has defined this as a textbook case of genocide, and this was published in Jewish Currents. In on October 13th, 2023. Months ago. Yes. And so it, it, it's what, four days after uh, October 7th. The, the, the disproportionate response, the complete destruction, bombing of uh, residential areas, bombing of hospitals, right? The disproportionate killing of children. He has defined this, an expert on genocide and the Holocaust has defined this as a textbook case of genocide. So we're not using that word lightly. So on that note, um, you describe or you've defined genocide for us. You've already explained, um, and, and if it's not implicit in the definition, how the Israeli violence in Gaza meets that definition. What are the numbers looking like right now? How many have been killed in Gaza? So the numbers are continuing to go up. As of last count, I right, believe it's a dynamic it thing. over 20,000 Palestinians killed. Um, uh, over 10,000 of those are children. And there was just a, a, a report that I saw from, um, Doctors Without Borders that said they can't even count the numbers because there are people that are still under the rubble that have not been accounted for. So this is just the, the minimum that we know of. Right. Um, and as you mentioned that the children make up such a high, um, percentage of the toll. And, and I think for me in understanding this as a genocide, that's part of the crucial point, right? The, the targeted uh, killing of large numbers of, of the generation, you know, the next generation as, as part of the, um, 
you know, the the goal of, of genocide. And, and it's not right, not just um, teenagers, but large numbers of infants, toddlers, um, young children, uh, as well as I know there's been a series described of resuscitative cesarean pregnant women who are being killed with fetuses in them and, and desperate attempts to save the lives of the fetus. And, um, and, and the youngest victims are fetuses that weren't even born yet. So they died as a result of their mother uh, being killed and they could not be saved by either by even an emergency cesarean. And so in addition to the genocide, what I wanted to add was that there's also an element of ethnic cleansing. Now, what exactly is ethnic cleansing? Again, this is not a definition that we're just, you know, coming up with. Ethnic cleansing actually technically per international law, it's not recognized as an independent crime, but there is a UN commission of experts that's been mandated to look at what happened in Yugoslavia. And they, their definition of it is a purposeful policy designed by one ethnic or religious group to remove by violent or terror inspiring means the civilian population of another ethnic or religious group from a certain geographic location. And so when we look at what happened in Gaza, they forced people to move from the north to the south, right? They destroyed majority of the hospitals, almost all the hospitals in north of Gaza, and they carpeted, carpet bombed the entire area. And their politicians have, have stated publicly that they're going to turn Gaza into a parking lot. Now, when the civilians you know, listened and moved to the south, what did they do to the south? They, they, they started bombing bombed the south. And so we have... And targeting the healthcare infrastructure as well. And continuing to target the healthcare infrastructure there. And not only that, you know, and, and, and with this, the, the, the reason that they've given over and over and over is that they want to attack Hamas. They want to retaliate against Hamas and destroy it. What's happening in the West Bank? The attacks on healthcare systems, the attack on civilians, the killing of civilians in the West Bank where there is no Hamas. How do we explain that? How do we explain that if it isn't systematic attack on a group, on, 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 a, on a certain ethnic group? You know, part of that, what rises to the level of genocide, and, and I hate having to keep saying it over and over again, but I think it's worth being explicit and, and uh, you know, calling out what we see is not only the target of children, but in, of entire families. So there's the other phenomenon, right, of the wounded child with no surviving family, a new medical acronym, WCNSF, um, which is uh, coming up in the medical records and, and in the literature now. Um, and, you know, this continues even, I was just, um, you know, every Monday I listen to Democracy Now! and, and get brought up to date on sort of the latest atrocities, including there was a teenager, Dina Mosen, who was a W amputee from when her house was bombed, killing many of her family members. She was just killed as a patient inside Auto Hospital when that was, um, uh, you know, targeted for attack by the Israeli military. Um, anything else that you want to say about the, the targeting of entire families and what's going on in Gaza. Yeah, and I think it's important to to point out that the WCNSF um, wounded child no surviving family is not no surviving parent or siblings. It is no surviving aunt, uncle, cousins, grandparents. It's entire family lines. The last time 
I saw this statistic. I think it's, it's, it's updated. Entire family lines were being wiped off of the registry. Entire bloodlines. I, I think it was at least 50 at that time. It's probably a lot more now. Entire family lines and generations have been completely wiped off. And to make matters worse, I think this was about two weeks ago where the uh, facilities that kept records for the city were attacked. The archives. The archives. archives. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, it's not just killing, you know, entire families. It's wiping out the entire history. Erasure. E erasure of the entire community, entire ethnic population. Wow. And so I don't understand how we can look at the systematic destruction of everything and not call it a genocide and not you know, not basically call it what it is. What we're being told is, you know, what we're being told is not to believe our eyes and ears. Hmm. And in addition to the, the numbers of dead that you shared with us, we also know that there's large numbers of casualties, some of them really severe. One number I heard was a thousand traumatic amputations of children in the last couple months. Um, and we know there's a lot of burns. Uh, white phosphorus has been reported. Um, and the other thing I think that really has resonated with me, and, and I think we're going to get into what has been the medical institution's response to what's going on, but the way that healthcare workers and the medical infrastructure has been t systematically targeted and without um, a serious response, you know, in the lay media, in the academic press, you know, inside uh, organi mo many organizations with some notable exceptions of healthcare workers. Um, and I think, um, you know, at least 23 hospitals uh, have been attacked. 45 ambulances have been shot up. Some numbers I've seen were higher, um, have been bombed and attacked. Physicians have been killed at work. We know there was MSF physicians killed while working at Aloha Hospital along with a neonatologist. Um, patients killed at the hospital. Um, there were just reports, you know, which haven't been confirmed, but with by eyewitnesses, including journalists, of uh, bulldozers, bulldozers running over um, people, uh, displaced people seeking refuge uh, at, I think it was Alauda Hospital as well. Um, and, you know, the, the, the names of these hospitals, right, uh, Al-Ali Hospital, which was bombed early on, and where Dr. Ghassan Abu Sitta did a press conference in the parking lot, which is worth listening to, um, Al Shifa, you know, hundreds were killed there. Al Shifa Hospital, where um, uh, hundreds were killed as well. And I think it's worth noting at Shifa Hospital, the uh, director of OBG, the chair of OBGYN, the chair of internal medicine, the chair of emergency medicine have all been killed. And the director is now under arrest. And we could go on and on. We know that there was a forced evacuation of a hospital, Al Nasser, and that premature babies were left without any arrangements to care for them when they not only died but rotted in the beds. Really graphic, really horrible, systematic attacks. And as you mentioned, it was done all over the north, and now it's transitioning to the south. Anything else that you, you want to say about that? Right. And, yeah, so what, one thing I want to add is, remember when, when Ahli Hospital was the first hospital that was bombed? And there was conversation going back and forth saying, 
it's you know it wasn't Israel that did it. It was uh, a uh, a bomb that went the wrong way that was um, um, that was sent by by Hamas, and, and and there was equivocation of whether they really targeted a hospital or not. A little bit after that, a letter was written by a hundred Israeli physicians, some of them <laughs> pediatricians, urging their government urging their military to bomb hospitals if they deemed it appropriate, okay? And the letter that they wrote um, basically said, uh, the doctors claimed that bombing, and, and, and this was when they were going and moving towards Al-Shifa Hospital, and they were saying that is the, the, the base of Hamas. They said, Bombing of the Al-Shifa Hospital, the largest medical facility in Gaza, was a legitimate right of Israel because it serves as a base for Palestinian armed forces. And this was translated from the letter that they wrote. The residents of Gaza saw fit to turn hospitals into terrorist nests to take advantage of Western morality. They are the ones who brought destruction upon themselves. Terrorism, terrorism must be eliminated everywhere. Attacking terrorist headquarters is the right and the duty of the Israeli army. And so after that, after, you know, the going back and forth of saying, no, we really didn't hit a Ahli hospital. With the backing of their physicians, they went on a rampage attacking every hospital without, without even thinking twice about it. And so what is our response to that? Right? If we have physicians disavowing their oath and calling for the bombing of hospitals where there are patients, there are injured civilians. What is our response as physicians? Do we stay silent and say this doesn't concern us? Right. And I think, um, you know, pursuant to that question that you asked, there were uh, physicians, I think at Al-Shifa, that did a press conference calling this out. And uh, basically, as I understand it, all of the healthcare care uni uh, unions in Gaza, if not in Palestine as a whole, have sent out an explicit request for solidarity, uh, I think back in November. Um, so so the yes. question of what we should do, you know, we have some suggestions by the physicians uh, on the ground uh, of, of what's asked of us. We do. We do. They stopped taking care of patients. They were getting they they were getting, you know, hundreds and hundreds of patients a day, thousands of patients a day from the bombing, from the constant bombing. They had to stop their patient care to beg the world to say, you know, help us. They said, we as doctors are ambassadors of peace. We save lives. Israeli doctors who signed a letter promoting bombing of hospitals with patients inside have committed a betrayal to their noble profession and bear responsibility. So instead of, you know, the rest of the physicians in the world standing up for, on behalf of our Palestinian colleagues, you know, calling out Israeli physicians and saying, you know, how, how dare you, how dare you call for the bombing of civilians in hospitals and injured patients? They had to do it themselves because we remain silent. And if we're not silent, we are silencing, our institutions are silencing the people who want to speak up and who want to advocate for these people. And for anyone just joining us, this is Trauma Code on WBAI on the line with Dr. Khali Hussein talking about the genocide in Gaza and specifically the toll on healthcare facilities. We're going to take a moment 
and uh, a music break, and, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Trauma Code. I'm on the line with Dr. Khali Hussein, and we're talking about the genocide in Gaza and specifically attacks on um, the healthcare system and what the moral um, imperative is for all of us, but particularly physicians and healthcare workers. We've talked about how almost 300 healthcare workers. Over 100 physicians have been killed, many of them with their entire families, several of them, you know, while at the hospital working, many of them right after coming home from the hospital and joining their families. And if I can say, I think, you know, one reason why this hasn't been covered terribly well uh, is in addition to racism and things like that, is there is a blockade, right? There's very few foreign journalists in Gaza, and there have been something like 90 journalists killed since October in Gaza, which is, I think, more than the entire uh, number of journalists killed in the Vietnam War and many other really, you know, iconographic um, violent wars in, in which journalists were caught up in the violence. I mean, and I think there is um, a case even, again, from today or yesterday or over the weekend, um, and uh, you can probably pronounce their names and maybe you know them better, where a... Al Jazeera journalist, photojournalist, um, was shot and left in the street for hours and bled out, and snipers pinned down any ambulances trying to get to him. Um, and uh, his co-worker who was shot and survived had already survived a bombing that killed something like 12 members of his family. Um, so, you know, a- any you know, part of that is I think there is targeting of journalists and physicians, but there's also a level at which the destruction is so complete the violence is so extensive that if we were talking about puppeteers you could probably come up with a dozen that have been killed just because it's so many people it's everywhere yeah i think one of the things that um we've seen you know it's it appears that there's an indiscriminate bombing going on um carpet bombing um, but there was a, um, a pattern that was recognized, especially for healthcare workers. One of my colleagues is a surgery resident here, but he's originally from Gaza. He went to medical school, uh, in Gaza and has family members there and has colleagues in Al Shifa hospital. That's where he did his training. And the pattern that was, that was recognized and that, that shows that it wasn't indiscriminate, but very discriminate and targeted attacks on the healthcare system and, and healthcare workers was that physicians would leave would leave the hospital after their long 24 you know 48 sometimes multiple days in a row in the hospital at the beginning in October um, uh, uh, the first few weeks of October and then they would go home to their families and they would be attacked and bo- their their homes would be bombed killing not just them but their entire families and there are multiple multiple reports of physicians dying specifically in that way um, uh, one particular example is uh, Dr. Hamam um, Alo. 
He's a nephrologist who was taking care of his patients and he was actually interviewed on Democracy Now! Um, where um, he was asked, are you going to leave with your family and evacuate to the South? And his response was, if I go, who treats my patients? And he goes on to say, we are not animals. We have to receive proper health care. You think I went to medical school and postgraduate degrees for a total of 14 years, so I think only about my life and not my patients. Do you think this is the reason I went to medical school, to think only about my life? This is not the reason why I became a doctor. And then two days later, he was killed along with his entire family. And you know, the case of Dr. Hamam Alo really has resonated with me and I think Listening, his that interview was, as you mentioned, one week. He was killed over the weekend, and then it was rebroadcast posthumously. Um, and something he says during that interview that, that really, I think, changed the way that I saw what was going on is that he says, we are being exterminated. Um, and then, subsequently, he's killed with his entire family, including, I think, two other physicians um, who, who were li- he was living with. Um, and um, something a- a- about that moment just made me realize that, that he was right. There's no reason to question his, you know, his words. Um, they were prophetic, and he was indeed killed along with his family and, and his patients and everyone else was being targeted. There's a whole list that have, uh, again, kind of resonated with me. Um, and again, insofar as all of the, um, and we'll get to it, but the medical um, organizations, organization of medical workers have remained silent when, you know, the... the uh, for example, Dr. Mohammed Edwan, who was an early adopter and promoter of endoscopy when he was killed, haven't heard anything from any GI or minimally invasive um, group. When Dr. Hamam Allah was killed, haven't heard anything from any of the nephrologists or any of the internal medicine. We mentioned, uh, you know, three heads of departments were killed at Al-Shifa and the director was um, basically kidnapped, held hostage without any charges I'm aware of. Um, one of the three uh, senior burn and plastic surgeons in the Gaza Strip, who also worked at Shifa Hospital, uh, was killed as well. There, a, a former dean and current dean, or I guess up until his death, of the Islamic University of Gaza were killed, uh, many of them with, along with family members. Multiple professors from the medical school have been killed. You know, multiple intensivists, um, surgeons, trainees, students, dozens of nurses, pharmacists, um, techs, uh, you know, the, the, the head of the blood bank, almost mm-hmm. yeah, paramedics dozens. In, 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 in an ambulance with patients attacked inside, injured patients attacked inside an ambulance. I mean, the, it's, it's over 300 so far, 300 healthcare workers, including physicians, nurses, paramedics, dentists, pharmacists, over 300 have been killed. And what really tr- what really troubles me about this um, that I don't know how other healthcare workers don't recognize even just in a self-serving, self-preserving uh, mindset, I, I don't see how we can anticipate any if if this is allowed to continue as much as it has been. I don't see how we expect any future warfare to learn that they shouldn't target healthcare workers. I think the hallmark of 21st century warfare is going to be the systematic destruction of healthcare workers and healthcare infrastructure in a way that it largely hasn't been for the last, you know, 50, 70 years. 
It, it hasn't. And the, the, the thing is, I think one of the things that we're missing in medical education is the role of physicians when it comes to these kinds of conflicts, right? We don't learn from history. And so in, in racking my brain um, and the issues that I've had with trying to be very vocal um, and having institutions just completely shut us down, completely be, um, you know, silent on this issue, and as opposed to how loud they were when it came to Ukraine, you know, we, we'll get in, we'll get into the double standards and the racism on that in a little bit. Um, but we haven't learned the history that physicians, the role that physicians had played in the history of genocides. And so, um, in trying to, you know, the, preparing the talk for the students at Stanford, um, I, I asked the the student that was helping prepare this, Mike, do you know how physicians were involved in? Um, in the Holocaust, and none of them knew. Um, you know, the Nuremberg trials, there was a physician's trial where several physicians were involved in experimentation in uh, in running the gas chambers that killed, you know, um, millions of people. Um, 17 of them were tried, and I believe seven were, um, were brought up, uh, were found to be guilty and sentenced to death. So the fact that physicians actually partook in the killing of people, in the extermination of people, the fact that we in a field that is supposed to serve humanity and save lives, the fact that we can use the skills and the privilege that we have, the access that we have to people's bodies and use it in the extermination of people, that is something that is critically important for us to know. Yet it's not even discussed. Wow. And but it does come up right? in the in the oath that we take when we become physicians. I think that that's another point that you'd made in your talk for the global health folks at Stanford, right? So there have been a, a recent right. modification about the possibility of threat and what is our obligation to folks who are threatened or. Uh, right. And so the change in the Hippocratic Oath was made after the Geneva Convention. Right. So the modern version actually includes a um, a one line that is actually uh, that is from what happened in the Geneva Convention and the fact that it was seven doctors who were sentenced to death for their crimes against humanity. And that line reads, I will not use my medical knowledge to violate human rights and civil liberties, even under threat. Mm. Right. And so I remember taking my oath when I was in medical school, and we've never talked about that. We've never talked about why do I have to put in my oath that I don't, I'm not going to use my medical knowledge to violate human rights, right? It's not a topic that's discussed. But the sad thing is, and if you look at the literature, like we don't talk about this, but this is written at, at length. There, there's a there's an article that I found that was very fascinating that looked at the involvement of physicians in current genocides mm. as recently as in the 1990s. Okay, I know it seems so long ago for our millennial, our um, Gen Zers, and, and uh, Gen Z, but to me, 20, 1990 is like 10 years ago. But <laughs> um, so as recently as the war um, in Rwanda. Physicians have been involved in committing genocide, in withholding treatment to patients. And a lot of it stems from the fact 
that physicians prioritize nationalism over their oath to serve patients, right? What we're seeing, you know, the other extreme that we see is what's happening in Gaza. What Dr. Allo has, has, has told us that, you know, he did not pursue medicine to look out for himself only, to think about, about himself only, that he's here for his patients and he's not abandoning his patients. And then the other extreme that we have that we rarely discuss is the fact that people put their, their nationalism, right, their politics over their patients. And if you go on social media and if you see physicians who are pro-Israeli, pro-Zionism, right, physicians who are signing letters in Toronto, I think there's like 555 physicians who have signed an open letter saying we are proud Zionists, right? Physicians going on social media saying kill Palestinians. You know, these people are terrorists. They brought this on themselves. You know, we have more people on this side. You know, they're not committing genocide, but they are in support of the entire destruction of an entire people. And so the fact that we don't discuss this and the fact that we don't talk about it is what created our current medical system, our current healthcare culture, where not only are we not speaking up on behalf of the people who are being exterminated for the world to watch, we are silencing people who are, who are trying to speak up. The, and, and our responses to different wars are completely different. And you can see that in the response of two major organizations. And I can talk about both of them. Please. One is the one is the American Medical Association. So the American Medical Association, when it came to the war in Gaza, when it came to Palestine, they put out a statement saying, you know what, the only thing that we're gonna say is medical neutrality, right? Let physicians do their do their job and take care of their patients, don't attack healthcare workers. Right? Very neutral. Um, it's critical that medical neutrality is observed because physicians and healthcare professionals must have the ability to carry out their work and administer urgent care to those in need. We also support efforts to deliver humanitarian aid and medical supplies to those facing a humanitarian crisis. Right? Not taking sides, not um, advocating for one group over, 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 over the other. And then if you go to their website and look at it, it's... The, the logo that they use for that is the AMA Press Center, their, their regular brand. Now, you go back to what they said on Ukraine. The, the picture that they use on their website is the flag, is the Ukrainian flag, right? And what it says is, the title is, Senseless War in Ukraine Sparks Physician Aid Response. And the, the statement from the president, Dr. Gerald E. Harmon, says, the AMA is outraged by the senseless injury and death the Russian army has inflicted on the Ukraine people. For those who survive these unprovoked attacks, the physical, emotional, and psychological health of Ukrainians will be felt for years. So we can see a stark difference in how we respond to the war in Ukraine versus what's happening in Gaza. And you had meant, you'd mentioned two organizations. I heard you talk about the AMA, mm -hmm. the American Medical Association. And I know you've, you've also spoken out about how the American College of Surgeons 
um, has responded. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yes, I do. So I was a previous member of the American College of Surgeons. I think the American College of Surgeons has been, you know, fantastic in um, advocating for for you know surgical care of patients, trauma, and you know I saw firsthand their response to Ukraine. And so when it came to Ukraine, they um, they had you know one of the one of the things that they promote in 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 response to gun violence here in the states is teaching people how to control bleeding and make sure nobody dies from hemorrhage, right? Nobody is going to die from blood loss. And so they teach people, you know, stop the bleed, how to put on tourniquets, how to save lives. And so when the Ukrainian war happened, they were teaching people, there were um, ACS fellows that were going into Ukraine and serving, um, and they were also teaching it remotely um, online. And so uh, in one of the one of the um, articles that was published on the website says, you know, after decades of relative peace throughout Europe on February uh, 24, 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine in a major escalation of, of the conflict that began many, many years ago. And they talk about, um, you know, the humanitarian crisis and the death toll and they, you know, they they humanize what's happening. And then they're they're statement on Gaza came out, you know, as soon as it started, I started reaching out to the, um, to Dr. Turner, who's the, um, uh, the, the executive director. Um, she, she contacted me, she got me in touch with the member services, um, person, uh, to see what more the ACS could do. You know, you did this in Ukraine. Can you do the same thing, um, and help in Palestine? That was my question to them. And their statement uh, initially said, um, their only statement says, ACS remains concerned about the continued hu- the continued human suffering in Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank. In response to our call for organizations that could help provide humanitarian assistance to victims in the region, our members have offered the following list. The list will be updated as we get more information. And it's a, li- it's a list of nonprofit organizations that are, you know, either collecting money, um, food, and uh, medical supplies. Nothing more. And so I have an email thread with them um, that goes back and forth to say, okay, you know what? I know uh, I actually I sent them an email as soon as the physicians, uh, the Israeli physicians wrote a letter saying to bomb hospitals. And I said, we as an organization should be in a position to speak up on this because, you know, we you're the American College of Surgeons. You're a major organization, surgical organization. You have the committee of trauma like we talk about this all the time we are, you guys speak up on on conflicts you just did it for ukraine and the email response that i got was we can feel we can see your deep concern for this issue and we feel um your hurt through your through your message um there are many wars happening throughout the country, you know, throughout the world. And they named Sudan, Congo, Somalia, Yemen, Syria, and, and Ukraine. Um, the the position of the ACS is that we do not speak on any world conflicts. And so, you know, being on the email list and getting all the emails about Ukraine, I knew exactly, you know, that that, that statement was false. And so I replied to them. I looked, I searched their entire website and looked at every article that was written regarding any of those countries. And of all those countries, the only country that has had multiple articles written on it, a session given at clinical Congress 
devoted to it on war, you know, lessons from the war in Ukraine. It was only Ukraine. Nothing was discussed when it came to any other country. So the only European country, and that was part of their statement, after many years of relative peace in Europe, right? So the one European country to experience a war is the only country that gets this much attention from the American College of Surgeons. Everybody else, you know, people of color, brown people, Arabs, Muslims, you know, they're always in war. We're not going to talk about them. But, you know, a Ukraine, a, a country in Europe that has been in relative peace, of course, we're going to give it our, our attention. So I pointed out this double standard and I said, why is Ukraine the only country that gets this much attention from the American College of Surgeons? Why is every other country, all African countries, all other Middle Eastern countries, why do they not deserve the same attention from the American College of Surgeons? Your members are diverse. It took them eight days to respond to me. And I, in between those eight days, I've, I kept sending, I, I, I sent three more emails saying, circling back, I have my ideas of why you remained silent on those countries, but I want to give you, you know, the benefit of you telling me what the reason is. And the email that I got was, the ACS's position on this is clear. We will not speak on this. Please look to our previous statement. And so that for me was a clear statement that the American College of Surgeons, despite their diversity, equity, and inclusion statements and you know uh, um, working groups and task forces, remains racist in its practice and in its policy in who they whose lives they value. And so as a result of that, they said, there's no reason for me to be a member of an organization that is this racist, wow. that sees no value in in the lives of non-Europeans, of non-white people. Right. So I, I, I am no longer a member of the American College of Surgeons, and I'm actually in the process of of um, writing up why I no longer feel that being a fellow of the American College of Surgeons is an honorable thing. Having FACS after after your name, you know, they've sold it to us as, you know, this is the epitome of your career, you know, of your qualifications, of your qualifications. Right. What happens to the ethics of that? What happens to our professionalism? Right. Being a member, being a fellow of the American College of Surgeons to me no longer means anything if you cannot speak up, you know, in an equitable way for all lives. When FACS to me means I stand by, behind an organization that values European lives more than any other life. White lives more than any other lives. And as an organization, we cannot be reflective enough. When somebody points this out, we cannot be, you know, we cannot hold ourselves accountable to our double standards and course correct. You have very detailed experiences with one of the uh, most important American medical associations, the, the um, American College of Surgeons. We know that at the American Medical Association, a, a group of students tried to bring forth um, a uh, 
a position, basically, calling for ceasefire from the organization, and they were shut down by the leadership. We know one of the trainees at Jacoby here in the Bronx wanted to have a presentation, a grand rounds for their department. Um, and when uh, I guess the leadership felt she might call for a ceasefire, or she had done it on her social media, the, the grand rounds was canceled, which I've never heard of happening. And, and you know, because of calling for a ceasefire, not not calling out, you know, Israel. And, and that's the other thing that I forgot is, it, is part of my communication with the ACS was I, I'm not asking you guys to be political. I'm not asking you to condemn Israel. I'm not asking you to condemn Hamas. I'm not asking you to be political. I'm asking you to speak up for the protection of hospitals, for the protection of healthcare workers, for the protection of patients. And they couldn't even do that. Right. And a lot of these institutions, I think that was that Mont Montefiore um, in New York City. I believe so. Right, right. I think I said Jacoby. They're affiliated with Montefiore. That's right. Yeah. So they, yeah, they canceled the ground rounds because that person wrote one post one social media post calling for a ceasefire. So the medical institution, our medical institutions are silencing people calling for a ceasefire saying, stop killing people. Just think think about that. Think of, about how crazy that sounds. In, in the shadow of, of all of those losses, the genera generational loss mm -hmm. of healthcare workers, leadership um, and trainees and students in, in, in Gaza, um, and you have very detailed experiences with one such organization, but uh, there have been very few exceptions, very few healthcare organizations who have uh, taken what seems like a very low bar, but I, I, I guess is a very bold moral stance um, against genocide and in favor of a ceasefire. And when I brought this up, our, our previous guest was uh, Tariq Lubani, uh, who has a lot of experience in Gaza. He pointed out that a lot of this is generational, right? Um, uh, who has so far made important statements as we mentioned the student group within AMA there was a whole the American uh, Public Health Association there was like a, a complete revolt uh, had to be quite a battle before any reasonable statement came out of their meetings um, you know the the union the labor union for interns and residents was one of the first ones to call for a ceasefire 1199 healthcare workers union now has joined um, joined that call but beyond that I can't think of a meaningful well, I think there's probably some exceptions, like an Ontario Students Association and things, but very few important, powerful organizations through all of the specialties and subspecialties or any of the journals have published a very, you know, a meaningful call for, for ceasefire, for example. The journals are doing the opposite. The, the journals, I think one of the first journals that came out, and I think this was uh, November 8th, 2023, was a JAMA. They published uh, an op-ed by Matthew Winia, who's a bioethicist, by the way, who was basically making the case for bombing hospitals. Uh, one of the things he said was that, you know, um, Israel, in its in its response to Hamas's attacks, has promised not to target medical facilities unless they are being used for offensive purposes, which can make striking them legal under limited circumstances. In the in the Journal of American Medical Association. So um, there were, this was sort of the academic groundwork for the full on assault that followed of yeah, healthcare. Institutions. I mean, they were manufacturing consent in the literature. Mm. Right. What have you ever I have never in my wildest dreams thought I would see anything in, in JAMA that 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 came even close to justifying bombing a hospital. Right. But here we have the here we have JAMA 
basically, you know, letting a bioethicist make the case for when it's okay to bomb a hospital. Right? And we're supposed to, you know, listen to what Israel promises to do. Right? Despite everything that we've seen. Despite what, you know, our, our eyes are lying to us, right? We're supposed to ignore them. Despite everything that we've seen, we're supposed to believe that Israel has promised us that they are not targeting medical centers. But then we see hospital after hospital after hospital after hospital being bombed when only it was Al-Shifa hospital that they said was a um, was the ground base for Hamas, right? What was the reason for having five premature babies be completely abandoned, forcing the nurses and the and the healthcare workers and the parents to leave at gunpoint, to leave five premature babies to rot to death. How is that self-defense? What is the point of a military going into a hospital and sniping injured victims? How do we justify any of this? How does any of this fall under Israel has a right to defense to defend itself? And and if I may, one thing that bothers me is when people um, sort of speak as if a country is an individual and is speaking when there's actual, you know, there's individuals who are speaking. And I think that's what you mentioned, Raz Sagal, the Israeli historian of genocide that called this a textbook case of genocide. There's another Israeli historian of genocide, Omar Bartov, I think his name is. Um, who and they've both written about you know being Hebrew speakers and studying what's being said in Hebrew by you know people with names and positions of authority in the civilian and military leadership of Israel, and they have very well documented I think um, to this point what they describe as um, genocidal intent behind um, behind the violence. Um, so I, I think it, it's hard to believe you know. As you mentioned, the, the way Winnie and others would would take the word of a of a military spokesman in English, you know, mm -hmm. on a, on a news channel, rather than looking at the um, at the literature, looking at the academic study, the historical study of what's going on. Right, and 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 we've seen what how people, you know, create the situations to to, to continue to support this. Right, instead of looking at the genocidal words of the of, of leadership in Israel and the military personnel in Israel, the calls for a free Palestine are being termed genocidal, right? Don't look at the words of, the, of a leader, of a prime minister that says, we're gonna you know, kill all of them. We're gonna wipe you know, Gaza completely clean. The military personnel who says, we're gonna turn it into a parking lot, right? The, the people who have the means to do exactly what they say and who are doing it. You know, let's look at protesters who are saying free Palestine from the river to the sea for a free Palestine. Let's classify that as genocidal, right? And then to add to the journals, I wanted to, to not only pick on JAMA. JAMA was the worst by, by far, um, but the Lancet was it, it was also um, instrumental in in their efforts to silence uh, the calls for ceasefire. The Lancet declined to publish an open letter um, from healthcare workers. It was about three thousand healthcare professionals that that called for a ceasefire uh, on humanitarian grounds. Right, I was a co-signer of that paper. 
um, of that open letter that basically said, you know, look at the numbers. And at that time, I think the, the death toll was at, uh, might have been at 8,000. It was the first time that Al Ahli Hospital was, um, was bombed and we were we called for a ceasefire on humanitarian grounds and that was signed by over 3000 healthcare professionals the lancet refused to 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 publish it if they instead published a um an an op-ed by richard horton um who's the 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 lead there and basically talking about his time in gaza and uh, openly lied about the fact that he saw pictures of Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein on the walls of hospitals, right? Um, it was physicians from Gaza who called it out and said, we train there. There's no such thing, right? Blaming the people of Gaza, the blaming the civilians on what is happening to them, saying, you know, the, the, the propaganda that keeps being spread saying you voted for Hamas, so therefore you brought this on them, uh, um, uh, on yourselves. Is there anything else that you would want to say? I've been thinking about this myself to particularly people in healthcare, but, you know, also our lay audience. You know, what does this moment call for us to do in, in a couple of sentences? What would you ask of people? I would say first and foremost is... Um, if you are remaining silent on a genocide, I want you to ask yourself why. Um, you know, fear of retaliation is real. Um, people are being targeted for speaking up. But if you are in a situation where you where you are being silenced, your voice isn't yours. And so, you know, and is that what you want to see? Is that what is that? a situation that you want to be in the rest of your life. I think it's it, I think it's the opportune time to ask that if you don't feel free to speak your mind and speak up against a genocide, why are you in that situation? Welcome back to the Trauma Code on WBAI in New York City. That was just an interview with Dr. Kali Hussein on uh, physicians in times of genocide. And the, uh, the second half of that uh, interview will make it available online, uh, whether wherever you get your podcasts, or also hopefully play it next week or ne next episode on the Trauma Code. And if we have time, I was hoping to end with a reading uh, by Brian Cox, an actor of a poem by Rifat Alarir, um, If I Must Die. Uh, thank you for joining us, New York. If I Must Die, by Rifat Alaria, November the 1st, 2023. If I must die, you must live to tell my story, to sell my things, to buy a piece of cloth and some strings. Make it white with a long tail, so that a child somewhere in Gaza, while looking heaven in the eye, awaiting his dad who left in a blaze and bid no one farewell, not even to his flesh, not even to himself. Seize the kite, my kite you made flying up above, and thinks for a moment an angel is there bringing back love. <laughs> 